Good morning, everybody. How are you doing out there? Good? Hey, for, for, for those of you who are here for the very first time, you have no idea, no idea in the world how long we've been praying for you to show up. It's awesome to see you. Thanks for being here. Hope that you leave today thinking that this is home for you, that this is family for you. And uh, to sort of make it real for you, we're not going to embarrass you in any way. You don't have to stand up and tell us about the crime you committed that you weren't convicted of, nothing like that. Just have fun, chill out, okay? Uh, I just want to thank people in this body. If you're, if you're new, you don't know this. It's, this is a loving group. I got rear-ended a week and a half ago, knocked completely out. I woke up thinking Obama was still president, so I knew I flunked the concussion protocol. Uh, but if I get through this message, this will be the longest I've been on my feet for a week and a half. So people brought food, people have been praying, it's been awesome. You are among people who are lovely. Um, third thing is, next week, I want to remind you to put on your calendars, 5 November, we're going to have a little shindig after the service, we're going to be talking about... Uh, I'm going to say the budget, but it's not really the budget, because what the budget does, it reflects the vision of this church, because you know where what you love, you spend money on, right? What you're committed to, you spend money on. And so we want to show you guys what we as elders have put together as the budget, having sold our property over in McLean, what we're going to do with that money, uh, how we're going to use it for God's glory and ministry, and we want to show you point by point what we've been doing, we'll give you guys a chance to kind of get a sense of what the vision is, where we're headed as a church, and ask any questions that you have as well, because I know this is a body. We're just all parts of the body of Christ. He's the head, so ideas come from all kind of places, not just from the leadership. So that, be ready for that. Um, let me just pray for our time in God's Word as we're going to be getting into Romans chapter 6. If you would join me, that'd be awesome. God, thank you for this morning. Thanks for these lovely hearts that you have brought uh, into our midst this morning. I pray that you would give us open minds, that we would understand your word, that you would give me the ability uh, beyond my own capabilities to explain what it is that you are trying to tell us, what you want us to know, how you want us to be. Uh, you would give us the drive to follow you anew this morning. We love you. We thank you for what you've done for us and made possible for us that we could not achieve on our own. And we give this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, if you have a Bible, I know a couple of you do. You can turn to Romans chapter 6. We'll be there in a second. But for those of you who are brand new, let's tell you what we've been doing. We started a series. We started going through the book of Romans uh, earlier this year. Our plan is to get through the book of Romans in about two and a half years. So we're not just doing straight through. But we are doing, if you what, what you call it, expositional uh, teaching. Going through it verse by verse. That so does not give me the opportunity to pass over verse I don't happen to like. So we're going to have to deal with all of them as we go through it. We're up to chapter 6, but let me just remind you what we've been through so far. Romans chapter 1, 2, and early part of 3 really highlights this. Everybody who's ever lived on planet Earth, everybody who is now living on planet Earth, everybody who will ever live on planet Earth is in deep kimchi with regard to their relationship with God because we all have a thing that drives us apart from God, which is sin. And being imperfect because of that sin, we can never actually be in God's presence. So no matter what we try to do, no matter how good we are from today on, we've always got that thing we just did yesterday. Remember the little lie we told, little cheating on our income tax we told, little cutting somebody off in traffic we did, all that stuff is counted as sin. God says that's, that's a big deal. The sentence for that is death. Now that's the bad news. Good news starts in chapter 3 also and goes through chapter 4, which is that this thing that we could not achieve, being perfect enough to be in God's presence, God has accomplished 
for us by sending his own son who lived a perfect life, therefore did not have a death sentence over him, yet he willingly went to the cross to pay for the sins of others. And when God raised him from the dead, it was a declaration to the whole world that God had seen that death as satisfactory in paying for the sins of anyone who would place their trust and faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Then chapter 5 begins Paul's discussion about uh, how it is that this whole idea of being saved by faith is not some new concept. It happened all the way back with Adam. When Adam believed the word from the Lord and said, I'm going to be sending someone through the line, your line, down through the ages that's going to take care of this sin problem once and for all. He did the same thing with Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited to his account as righteousness. In other words, God saw him as righteous as he was because of his faith in what God proclaimed he would do was to send through the line of Abraham that Savior who would come and take care of sin. Paul then begins to go into some discussion that we've already been through here related to, okay, if you believe by faith in the, in the name of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh, and you got saved because God did it, you didn't do it, you didn't earn it, you did nothing to earn it, you just simply believe what God did, then can you ever lose it? And Paul went through a whole chapter talking about how that, that is impossible, that if you are a genuine Christian, big if, but if you are a genuine Christian, you will never lose that salvation. You are secure in that faith. So again, the big question then is if you are a, big, are a genuine Christian. Paul then begins to go into chapter 6, a discussion that is a response to a question that the early church had to deal with, which is, okay, and this is interesting because the, the, real, the rest of the world got this concept of what Paul was saying, what salvation really was. And the question they asked Paul was this, well, dude, if you believe, if it's true, if it's really the real fact that Christians who are genuine Christians can never lose their salvation, then you know what? That's going to just lead to, to mayhem, to chaos. It's going to erode the fabric of society because these Christians that believe that they can do anything they want to do and still be saved, still be going to heaven, they're going to just be the most lawless people on the face of the earth. And it's, they're going to be the ones that cause the decline of empires. So Paul addresses this question starting in chapter 6. And the whole chapter 6, 7, and 8 deal with the subject. I'm going to use a fancy Nancy word, then I'll explain. It's called sanctification. And all, all sanctification means is this is that you take something here and you place it over here, you set it aside over here for God's purposes. So it was here, but now it's here. See, that's not a hard concept, is it? Here, now it's here. Pretty easy. This thing over here now is designed for God to use, to change, to maneuver, so that it would be a glorious thing for God to be used by him. So that's, that's where we are. Uh, where are we in chapter 6? We found out in chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, that the Christian has a position in Christ. He's not just the same person wandering around. He has, he has morphed, if you will, from a caterpillar to a butterfly. And the butterfly cannot go back, as much as it want, might want to, cannot go back and hang out with the caterpillars. It doesn't belong there anymore. It has died to its old self. It's died to its old nature. As much as it might want to hang out with the caterpillars, it's now got a new thing. It's risen as a new creation. And that uh, we are now been placed We've been engrafted, if you will, into the body of Christ. And the life that we now live is through the power of Christ's life through us. And uh, then what we see uh, later on is that the precepts, that that, what that demands of us is that we are to kind of uh, resist sin. 
because we've died to sin. We've died to sin. The whole concept of baptism, you're dying to your old self, you're being raised in newness of life. That's what it means. This newness of life, you come up out of the water as a baptized person, as a Christian, with the idea that, okay, I'm not like what I used to be. I'm a different thing. I'm a new creation in Christ. I no longer have to sin. It no longer has mastery over me. I used to be enslaved to it, but now I'm not. I mean, I still might fall to it because sin still exists. We still have these flesh bodies that we have to contend with that might want to draw us back into old habits, but we don't have to do that. We are freed from that. Now, in verse 14 in chapter 6, the stuff that uh, E preached on last week, uh, we find that there's a comfort that the Christian has, that we can say no to sin and yes to God. Okay, now as we get into uh, chapter 6, verse 15, which is uh, where we start our text today, uh, some people have referred to this particular section as a kind of a reference to the power that the Christian has. Where does this Christian get the ability to obey God, the stuff he could not do before? How can he get that ability now? If there is some power, how uh, is it possible? Can we, can we be plugged into that power? And is it possible that some of us won't be plugged into it? I mean, back in our pre-Christian days, right, we didn't pay attention if we had to go to church. If mom and dad dragged us to church, we didn't pay. We, we, got, we got out of there as fast as we could possibly get out of that building. We might have even mocked it, right? We didn't have the interest or the ability to actually be a child of God, to actually be obedient to God. But when we got saved, something changed in us. And that something is what we... I kind of refer to as the nuclear reactor, the strength that we now have as Christians. And Paul's going to begin to explain this to us, uh, what we can now be plugged into. So in verse 15, Paul asked the question that he asked at the beginning of chapter 6, which is, okay, if we are as Christians under grace, if we are saved and we can't lose that salvation, are we going to just keep on sinning because we know we can get away with it? Because God has to let us in? So the fact that God has loved us unconditionally and has forgiven us all of our sins, past, present, and future, does that grace now give us the ability to say, the inclination to say, oh man, that's awesome. Now I can just do any darn thing I want to. Can I go around sinning all the time? Maybe I don't sin all the time, but maybe I can sin just in certain cases. You know, my favorite pet sins. Those are, those are probably okay. Is that what the grace we have received leads us to conclude we can do? Now, I've read a lot about Weddings. I've been, I've been doing premarital counseling now for a few years, uh, doing weddings for people. And I was reading about one, one wedding that where, oh, by the way, I've never had the bride and groom bloody, their, bloody themselves doing the, the festive cake eating thing. But the, something else I've never seen, and something else I've never heard at a wedding, is what this very bold guy said at his wedding doing his vows. He said this, I will never divorce you. I will never divorce you. Now, I suspect that most brides think that that's kind of a given in the whole concept of the wedding, but a few guys have the guts to state it that brashly. So how do you think that particular bride responded to that declaration? Do you think she said, did I just hear you right? Are, are you telling me, are you swearing that that's the way you're going to, you will never divorce me? Oh, yeah, okay, okay, well, good, that means, that means I can go through your money like water through a sieve, and you still have to take care of me. 
I can sleep around with anybody that I want, and you still have to stay with me. Thanks for that commitment. Is that the way that bride is going to respond to that, if you will, act of grace? I will never divorce you? Well, it turns out, no way. She is madly in love with this guy. And why is she madly in love with this guy? Because this guy is madly in love with her, and he's willing to do anything to prove it. And by the way, fast forward, that couple just had their fifth child, and she just followed with the kids, that husband, to Kuwait to the mission field. That's what happens when grace gets a hold of you. It bowls you over with its power and its love for you. It bends you beneath its weight. And Paul's basically saying, how could we, as Christians, having received this amazing gift, be any different? We've been forgiven. We've been declared righteous. We have had secured for us eternal life that we can now never lose. Now that we are in him, sharing his very life, now that we have his spirit that has come into us to indwell us, to change us, to free us from this sin, now that that's all true, are we now going to scorn that very love by sinning? I've heard people in ministry say this, who have committed adultery, Oh, I, I, I know it was wrong. I mean, I knew I was wrong when I did it. I mean, I knew it was wrong every time I did it. But hey, I'm a child of God. So awesome. I know he's going to forgive me. After all, I'm under grace, not law. And in verse 16, Paul's going to say, you know, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with that logic, that approach. He makes an assertion, and it's an assertion that is pretty much lost in modern-day Christianity. That's why we're forced to go through it, because we're going through Romans as we are. But it says this. Paul says, are we going to sin that we've received this grace? By no means. No way in the world is that going to ever happen, he says. Do you not know that he presents this fact? Do you not know that if you present yourselves as anyone, uh, uh, to anyone, as obedient slaves which is what we declared when we accepted Christ as our Lord, i.e. Master and Savior. You are slaves to the one you obey. That's why I had the little clip from uh, the Big Bang Theory but, uh, about slavery, and I had the little clip about the sheep following not everybody's voice, but the master's voice, the shepherd, shepherd's voice. Now, look, with this mention of slavery... Paul has just grabbed the attention of everybody there in this church at Rome. Estimates are that one-third of the population in Rome at this time were slaves. At one point, Rome actually considered having slaves wear, uh, I don't know, uniforms, some distinctive clothing that would mark them as slaves. You know, they abandoned that. You know why? Because there were so many slaves, they did not want to highlight the numerical strength of the slaves in their midst. Plus, there was a lot of free guys, free people, who had once been slaves. So it's likely that more than half of the members of the church in Rome either were slaves or had been slaves. So everybody there was keenly aware of the implications of what Paul was saying in this verse. Because obedience is the hallmark of slavery. I'm not sure what obedience school this dog is going to, but it's kind of amusing. But slaves and obedience, it's the same for various enslavements. You might well be sitting next to someone today who is a slave right now, and you don't even know it. Some people are enslaved to their 
work. They have one abiding allegiance in their life, and it's to the job, which they serve with slavish obedience. Some are enslaved to things. All their waking and some of their dreaming moments are given to taking care of what they have or dreaming about what they can get. Others are enslaved to habits that dominate their existence, and those examples are limitless. The person with an angry temper is slaves, are slaves to his temper. The sensual to their bodies. Here's the point. We obey the things that enslave us. We obey them. And everybody in the church in Rome would agree. Yep, Paul, you're right. As a slave, when I was a slave, I had no choice but to obey the voice of my master. The one I was a slave to exerted a power over me, and I had no choice but to obey. If you present yourself, you may know this if you've been in the military, if you present yourself to the military, you are going to have a drill instructor as your master. You are going to be his slave, and he will bend you, or she will, to his or her will. They have a power over you, and you must obey. He does not ask your opinion as to whether you are going to go on a 20-mile hike today. If you play ball and you get a scholarship to college, that head coach that you present yourself to has become your master, and he or she will bend you to their will as a coach. You've got no choice. You must obey. So, you ought to think long and hard about whom you submit yourself to and becomes a master of you. Paul uses this analogy to help us grasp that when we put our faith in Jesus, we are presenting ourselves to him as his servant, as his slave. He is Lord, right? What do you think that means? He's the master. We are not. And he exerts a divine power over us. Christ is not just somebody that you believe in in an abstract fashion. Somebody who's just come and died. He's someone that you are now in as a Christian. You've been engrafted into Christ, and his life has become your life. This gives him a power over us that compels us to obey. Just as a slave cannot disobey his master, you and I will be compelled as genuine Christians to obey Christ, by Jesus, because a slave must obey. And this is not not just a fact for some Christians. It is to be a fact for all Christians. You remember, perhaps, those of you who were here in January or February when we started this series, how Paul himself described himself in the very first verse in this book. Paul, a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. At salvation, we become slaves of Jesus. Our master has changed to a new master, and we are changed, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, and the grace we have received will compel us to obey, just like the sheep are compelled to obey the voice of the master. So, will grace lead us to just sin wantonly? By no means, Paul says, grace will lead you and me into obedience to Christ. In verse 16, he says something that I think will stun most people around us in this world today, uh, because it is also true of everybody, and it's this. No one, no one, no one is truly free. You are either a slave to sin and Satan, or you are a slave to righteousness and Christ. 
but no one is actually totally free. And here's what Paul says. You are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. See, Bob Dylan got it right. You got to serve somebody. So does Paul feel like Bob Dylan, that anybody is totally, absolutely free to do anything they want? They're masters of their own fate? No, you can be a slave of sin, one camp. You can be a slave of Christ, the other camp. Only two camps. Scripture says like this, when we are saved, we are delivered. We're taken from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear son. So there's either you being dominated by sin or you being dominated by a king who died for you. There's either oppression or there's love and grace and life. You're either one in one or the other. There's no other place. That's why when people talk about being free spirits, I have to chuckle. Because <laughs> there's really no such thing. There's either Christians or the rest of humanity. And the rest of humanity is described in scripture as those held captive by the devil to do his will. They are his slave. They're not free. They just think they're free. In fact, uh, typically, the most enslaved people on earth actually have convinced themselves that they're the most free. Suggest to the herpes-carrying Casanova that he's a slave and he will deny it. John Calvin said this 400 years ago, the greater the mass of vices that anyone is buried under, the more fiercely and bombastically does he extol how free he is. So, given verse 16, in Christ, do we have the freedom to do anything we want? Take in this quote from Abraham Lincoln. I'll give you five seconds to read it. Can we in Christ... Just do anything we want, live any way we want. Not if we are slaves to Christ. We do what he wants. What we get at salvation is really the freedom to do what we ought to do in Christ. Biblically, grace is not the ability to do what you want. It's the ability, the freedom, finally, to live a life according to God's design for us, which will lead us to the happiest and most blessed life ever, life to the full. Isn't that what Jesus promised his followers? Now, this concept right here in the New Testament, got shoved aside basically until the 16th century. The concept that saved people become changed people and they stay that way, that accepting Christ as your Savior means that you are submitting to him as Lord, kind of dissipated for centuries. When you become a Christian, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe that in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You bow your knee to him as Lord, as master of you, and Christianity lost that for centuries. Puritans came along, read their Bibles, amazingly, and said, whoa, look at this. And they revived the whole concept that when you are saved, there is within you now a supernatural desire to obey Christ. Back in the 1700s, they used to talk about people who professed a faith in Christ, but did not live lives of purity, had no love for other people, didn't really desire to know what the Bible had to say. They, they described those people as those who had an experimental religion. In essence, it wasn't the real thing. They were people Jesus referred to when he said things like this, every branch of me that bears no fruit, I will cast it off and throw it in the fire to be burned. There are professors of the faith that have no reality of it. I would say in many Protestant churches today, we see some of the same kind of thing manifest. 
where all you need to do is just say that you're saved uh, is to raise your hand or check a card or go forward or get baptized or accept Christ uh, to be forgiven. That's all, that's all you need. Now, that is what saves you, accepting Christ. But as you're going to see from this text, the New Testament preaches that faith in Christ, accepting Christ, is a whole lot more than just raising a hand or getting dunked in a tub of water. In accepting Christ, you are signing on to a recognition of your sin and guilt. And you bow your knee. You believe that this Jesus Christ did, in fact, die for your sins. And you change your mind about sin. And you're placed into Christ, and he now powers your ability to be obedient to him in actions, words, thoughts, motives, intentions. Like a lot of things in life, there's a lot more to salvation than we think. And that's what Paul's teaching here. Well, Paul says, look, let me, let me just give you some proof of what I'm saying is true. And uh, Paul's not going to talk abstractly. He's going to use the you pronoun in a plural sense to say this is supposed to be true of all people. Chapter 6, verse 17. But thanks be to God, he's telling these guys in Rome, that you, you were once, not now, but you were once slaves of sin. You become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you're now committed. In other words, saved people, once slaves to sin, have become obedient to slaves of Christ. Remember, the key component of slavery is obedience. Those saved people in Paul's day had become obedient to Christ because of the stuff that they had been taught based on the changes that God made to their very natures. And that was a standard teaching that I think every Christian got by the apostles all the way through their lives when they came to Christ. What Christ says goes. And our hearts want to obey that. And why not? They got it. That obeying would lead to the life they always dreamed of. That they always wanted deep down. Uh, I'm going to read a little passage from the book of Ephesians. Paul is talking now to a group of people that he, where he planted a church in Ephesus. He's uh, planted the church. He's gone off and he's uh, now writing them and he's describing them for, them for themselves. He says this, And you guys were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. That is, you were slaves to sin. And the description of us really continues on. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. That basically is a summation of Romans 1, 2, and the first half of chapter 3. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses or sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no man may boast. And he goes further to say this, it doesn't stop there. It didn't just stop with salvation. It says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, more than just a hand raise, right? More than just a dunking. More than just filling out a form. More than just giving a testimony. We are saved to be slaves 
of Christ, obedient to Christ, powered by Christ for these good works that God has prepared beforehand for us. That was us, you and me, all slaves of sin, under the dominion of sin and obedient to the evil one. We did not long to hear God's word. We did not long to do righteousness. We didn't linger long in church if we were forced to go. We couldn't get out of there fast enough. That's a great picture of us before Christ, isn't it? But it's so true. We were slaves to sin, but now we're to be slaves of Christ. We have a new sovereign who has a power over us, and we are compelled by his love for us, his kindness to us, his grace to us, to obey. That's how Paul sees salvation getting played out. Now, is what we just read a command, or is it just a fact? It's just a fact. It's how Christians are supposed to be. It's not... It's not supposed to be just a few select people. It's supposed to be all God's chillin' are supposed to have this experience. We're slaves to sin, now slaves to Christ. So that's Paul's proof. When you present yourself to someone, you're presenting yourself to them as slaves. So can grace lead to sin? No way, Paul says. Grace will lead people to obey Christ with a fervor that is just as serious and intense as their willingness before salvation to pursue sin. Paul says this in verse 18. And having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. So Paul has made his point. The genuine Christian presents himself to Christ as a slave to obey Christ. Uh, this next, this next uh, slide has some words on it too. I'm going to let you read those because I want to make a point. Paul, like the woman on this slide, is reached the point where he feels like there's a need to make some clarification. <laughs> Paul's not, Paul is not really happy likening being a Christian to being a slave. Not real happy with that. Even though it's true, there's something Paul isn't really pleased with in that illustration. Is it right, I think he's thinking, to call God a slave owner and us as his slaves? Well, yeah, in a sense. But there's something about it that doesn't ring true for Paul. And so, uh, see, see, a slave submits to its, his owner because of terror, because of fear, because he's going to get beaten up, killed if he doesn't obey. Is that, I think Paul is thinking, our relationship to God? Not really. He loves us. We love him back. He is seen as lovely to us. Paul says that it's the love of Christ that constrains him, that pushes him to act the way he does. So this next verse, you can kind of put parentheses around this if you will, because I think it's Paul, it's a kind of a side note from Paul, verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, or some translations say because of the weakness of your flesh. In other words, I, Paul, he's saying, have given you this analogy of slaves to a master so that you would at least grasp the concept that salvation results in our willing obedience to our submission to Christ. However, it's not a perfect illustration. He's almost like he's saying, I'm sorry I had to use that illustration, but I needed to do that to make the point. Now that he's made the point, he says, basically, I think the, where the analogy breaks down is that a genuine slave owner will put stripes on your back if you disagree with him, if you disobey. Has God done that for us? No, it was Jesus who got the scarred back. He's the one that says, hey, take my yoke upon me and learn of me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, because I am gentle and I am humble of heart and you will find rest 
for your souls. No, no, this new master is something different than a traditional slave owner. He is good. And Paul wants us to focus our attention on why as Christians we are driven to submit to God. And it's not because we're just terrified to death of this new master who's going to beat the stuffing out of us if we dare disobey, but because our new master is fantastic. Our new master says things like this, my body broken for you, my blood poured out for you. So Paul says, let me, let me just make sure I qualify this illustration. He says this, for once just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, that's what the former lives brought us before Christ, a downward spiral to despair and ultimately destruction, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Again, talked about that before. Sanctify something simply means it's set aside for God's use. God has saved us. He set us aside for his use as Ephesians would worded it set us aside for the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to do. See, we don't do good things to become Christians. But because we are Christians, God will lead us to do good things. We do them, we obey because we're saved, not to get saved. We do them because we love the God that saved us, who loved us first. Things might go better with Coke, but life goes better with Christ. You become a better father. You become a better husband. You become a better wife. You become a better child. You become a better friend. You become a better neighbor. You become a better citizen. You become better light and salt, better able to share Christ with others. What kind of president, what kind of Congress, what kind of Supreme Court would you like? One that's humble? One that's true? One that's holy? One that's upright? One that's moral? What are your chances of getting that? What kind of neighbor would you like to have? You'd like to have the kind of person that Paul is describing as a Christian is. Who do you want to live next to? That person. And when you present yourself as a slave to Christ... He produces in you through this process of someone of, who has the highest nobility. Life indeed does go better with Christ. And in verse 20, just as if you need reminding, here's what sin brought us. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What that means is that in your pagan days, your pre-Christian days, you had no desire for, you were free. You didn't have any inclination. You weren't driven at all to do the right thing. This does not mean that you never did anything right as a person who was not a Christ, a Christ believer, right? Um, people who are slaves of sin sometimes do some good things from a human perspective. However, this means that they were not subject to, were not slaves to the rule of righteousness. They have no compulsion from the heart to always do the right thing for the right reasons. That was not what motivated them at the heart level to do anything good that they did. Look, uh, it, it was me before I became a Christian. You, you, you couldn't have paid me to read the Bible before I became a Christian. I had no stake or interest in doing the right thing. I wasn't driven by a love for God or a love for others. I was into Dwayne all day long. And even the good things I did, usually in my mind, here's what I'm thinking. That good thing I just did, it's going to pay off for me down the road. That's going to, that's going to reap some benefits for me down the road. That was into me 24-7. But Paul asked, verse 21, 
But what fruit were you getting at that time? From the things of which you are now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. Fruit, Greek word simply means benefit. What benefit, what fruit, what joy, what reward did you really ever get from the sin you committed as a non-Christian? Probably about as much help as a cat when you're sick. (laughs) What really did you derive from the things you used to do? The things you're now ashamed of? You You see how Paul is viewing the way a Christian sees his past life? What did the things you used to do that now shame you uh, get to you? If I started talking about my life and the things I did before I became a Christian, uh, most of you would probably leave. And if you started talking about your life, we'd probably escort you out. We are all an embarrassment in the eyes of heaven before Christ came into us, every one of us. So Paul asks, what did you ever really get? What did you really get? Think about it. What did you really get? Use your brain. Use your noggin. What did that really ever get you? You got sin dominating you. You got shame and you get death as a final outcome. Any of you guys who are Christians want to go back to that? How appealing is that? Paul says this, but now, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, something of a person that can be used of God, increasingly showing holiness, and in the end result, eternal life. So, basically Paul says, look, just compare the results. Look at the bottom line of both. Results of being a slave to sin, being a slave to God. Death or increasing depth of friendship with God. Involvement in God's master plan for history. Using you more and more for the good things he's prepared for you to be involved in. And of course, life with him that never ends. Option one, death. Option two, life. Be a thinking person. Which option sounds more appealing? For me, it was option two. Maybe, just maybe, God is a most admirable master after all. Maybe he's not just sitting up there waiting to beat the stuffing out of us because we make a mistake. Paul's conclusion, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. The word wage is actually used to refer to a soldier's pay. Here's the payday for a soldier of sin. It's death. Alienation from God both now and for eternity, that's the payday. Then notice this, Paul does not say that there's a wage for righteousness. Why? Because God does not give anybody heaven as a wage, something that's been earned. He gives it as a gift. Eternal life in Christ Jesus because of faith in Christ. So, again, can grace lead a Christian to go back? But we can't because our new nature, we can't because of the God's love for us. It's our obedience, driven by that love, that drives us to respond in kind. Just like that wife responds to that husband because he just loves her. It's so poured out for her. It's the key to life and life to the full. I think I can tell you that I think about the sorriest state a person can find themselves in as a human being. Uh, Well, I guess the worst would be just to be an abject slave of sin, right? The best would be a slave to God who's actually responding to God's love in a way that actually causes them to become more and more Uh, like a person that God can use. But there's uh, some people, I think, who've signed on to the idea of salvation offered by Christ, by faith, but who's never actually had the obedience to become all that God wants them to be. And this person still dabbles on the dark side, letting sin reign where it actually has no authority to do so unless we let it. 
that person is a bit like, I've got a great illustration. A, that person's great like my daughter's dog, Pumpkin. Or as I lovingly refer to her, the idiot. She's flunked obedience school twice, but the family loves her absolutely to death as one of their own. They love to take her outside and let her run amok, you know, play with the stuff and all, do all that kind of stuff. And there for a while, when she was a little bitty pup and she didn't have eyes that could see beyond the yard or whatever, she would hang close. But then one day, one day, she imagines a squirrel a block away and off she goes, gone. Calling her back didn't help, screaming at her, they had to chase her down for blocks and blocks and blocks. I don't know how long it took them. But when she was finally corralled, she seemed sorry. She took her discipline like a man or like a spade female. Um, and she was reinstated into the good graces of the family. But she learned nothing. Learned nothing. Have I mentioned that she's the idiot? No. Anytime she could, she would run away. Time and time again. So now, the state of her life is what? She never, ever, ever, ever goes outside without a leash around her neck. She doesn't get to go all over the yard and smell the pee and the poop other dogs have left, like she really wants to. Some of us, I think, are like that. God loves us. We're his forever. But it's been years since we were really free in Christ, we, we, we know very little of the freedom, the liberty that comes from obedience to Christ. And our lives are not what God imagined for us, are not what God envisioned for us. Instead, God has had to do what any good parent, what this dog's parents have done. Discipline intended to encourage us out of that behavior pattern. If you're there, you, you, you feel it, don't you? Don't you feel God's chastening sometimes? Don't you feel the, the leash kind of restraining you from doing all that you would like to do? You, just, you, you can't do all that you want. You can't be all that you want. You know there's more. You know there's more to the Christian life than there is, but you have never gotten the fruit that you want because you're still dabbling in that slavery to sin stuff. And Paul asks again, what has it ever really gotten you? The end game of that path is death. And the life is not nearly as much fun as the liberty God intended for you to have through your obedience to him. I was listening to the words of the song the band did today by the killers. I didn't exactly, I didn't exactly know who, who, which guy wrote it or whatever. But when he says things like, another headache, another heart breaks, I am so much other than I can take. And my affections, well, it comes and goes. It doesn't sound like a lot of Christians. And he says this, I, I need direction to perfection. Don't put me on the back burner. These changes I, I'm assuming that he's trying to make are not changing me. From, from the person, from the old hard-hearted person he used to be. See, the change happens when we submit ourselves to Christ in obedience, and the changes happen over, over time. But this, this, this song reflected to me the person who's, who's maybe dabbled in religion, dabbled with Christianity, but never really submitted himself to Christ, and therefore he's lamenting the fact 
that he's not really living the life he knows is possible and he wants it so much, don't put me on the back burner. If you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you've heard for the very first time in your lives the two options available to you in life. Being a slave to sin you were born into and you're going to reap the fruit of that, the benefit of death, disappointment, of pain, of ending life going, you know what, I I think there was more to this life than I actually got out of it. Or being open to switching masters. Because you've got to serve somebody. Why not serve somebody who loves you? That person's name is Jesus. Let's pray.